Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and the Trump presidency. I would just like to remind you before we start that uh, the Spectator US edition is now out. We're on to about our fourth edition now. Uh, and you can subscribe either digitally or in print or both by going to www.spectator.us forward slash subscribe. And listeners of this podcast can get a special 5% discount if they go to that page and put in the code Americano in capital letters. Please do it. I'll be humiliated if nobody does. I'm joined today by John Rick MacArthur, who is the publisher of Harper's Magazine and somebody who has written frequently for The Spectator about Bernie Sanders and the Democratic Party. And Rick, I just want to ask you, we've got the Iowa caucuses coming up tonight. It looks as though Bernie Sanders is going to win, although the polls suggest there's a lot of undecideds and Iowa is notoriously unpredictable. But do you think he's going to do it? Yeah, I think he's probably going to win. I don't know how, uh, by how much. On the point of undecideds, they've changed the rules this year, which you may or may not know, so that if you come into the caucus room and you, and you commit to undecided, you can't change your vote later. In the past, you could come out of the undecided pool and throw your support to somebody else. And that's the great un, unanswered sort of question about the Iowa caucuses is, are they really democratic or not? Because in theory, a lot of peer pressure comes into play. If you're in a small town and you come into the caucus room and you're up against the local oligarchy, let's say, the local banker, the local you know, uh, a real estate broker or whatever, and you're just an ordinary guy or gal, to declare yourself for Sanders against what is likely to be a more establishment candidate favored by the local establishment takes some uh, courage, takes some guts. And yet, the, paradoxically, insurgents like Sanders tend to do better uh, in Iowa than other places. You know, Jimmy Carter came out of nowhere in 1976. That's the most famous example of someone coming from nowhere. Sanders, of course, is not coming from nowhere. He almost won last, uh, last time against Hillary Clinton. So it looks good for him. However, the Democratic Party establishment is arrayed against him. I mean, everybody's against him. Everyone's horrified by the idea that he might get the nomination. And if he does very well in Iowa, if he does better, let's say, than 25 percent, right now the average polling has him around 24% with Biden around 21%, I think. If he does better than 25%, people are going to start panicking. The gloves are already off. We saw what happened with Elizabeth Warren. She seems to be fading because what she did backfired. Yes, she tried to attack him, right? Right. She said she suddenly, after two years after they had a private conversation, she told the whole world that Sanders had told her in that conversation that a woman could not win against Trump in the general election. And Sanders, of course, denied this and said it was absurd, particularly given that Hillary Clinton did beat Trump in the popular vote by about three million votes. So it was a good rejoinder, but it was a dirty, it was, I think it's been viewed correctly as a dirty trick by, by Warren, scripted, I think, by the Clintons, the Clinton faction in the Democratic Party, that is the the Wall Street go-along-to-get-along fundraising machine that still really runs the Democratic Party. 
they really, really hate Sanders. They really hate him. They want to because he will ruin everything for them if he gets into power, or not everything, but he'll he'll do a lot of damage to the machine. But the machine is if the machine wants to stop Bernie, the machine is clearly failing. And I mean, it, it it'll be quite interesting to see how they will set about trying to stop him if. Let's say he wins tonight because he didn't win Iowa in 2016. He did win New Hampshire. The thinking is he'll win New Hampshire again. Uh, And if he wins Iowa tonight, his coalition is looking more diverse. He seems to be doing better with minority groups than he's done before. I mean, it seems to me you could be looking at Bernie in 2020 as a kind of Trump force in 2016. It doesn't matter how much the party bigwigs try to stop this insurgency. They won't be able to. Yes, and that that does seem to be the case. That every time they attack him, it it now seems to be backfiring. Warren is the the best example, but also the New York Times endorsement, quote unquote, of uh, Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren. They split the ticket. They they offered two people. They couldn't make it, make up their minds between the two women. That seems to have backfired as well. They, However, administered, they administered the kiss of death to not one but two candidates. However, you cannot underestimate, you shouldn't underestimate the power of the local democratic machines in particular states. And the next big primary state is a machine state, South Carolina, where blacks are in the majority. Blacks are very much a goal on to get along machine uh, voters, and they are the, the kind of voters who would tend to support Uh, Biden. And Biden, I think, is still leading in South Carolina. Sanders has had a hard time breaking through with black voters, even though his civil rights record is quite distinguished, pro-civil rights record. He was arrested in a demonstration in the early 60s when he was at the University of Chicago. Biden has always consorted with uh, segregationist senators. He's always been opposed to busing to achieve integration in public schools. Doesn't seem to bother the machine states. The other big machine state to be to watch is Nevada, where the unions are very, very closely aligned with the Democratic Party establishment. So remember that Clinton beat uh, Sanders in Nevada and Clinton beat Sanders in South Carolina. And those are the two states where Biden will make his big play, his big defense, if Sanders really takes uh, takes catches fire in the next uh, two primaries. Well, there is. There's also an interesting third B ingredient, which is Bloomberg, because Biden, let's say Biden doesn't just fizzle out entirely if he doesn't win tonight. And he does perform strongly in South Carolina and then performs pretty strongly going into Super Tuesday. You'll then have Bloomberg, who's going to put he's apparently willing to put up to two billion dollars into his campaign. And he will be, again, a more popular establishment choice than Bernie. What will happen to the establishment if Biden and Bloomberg are sort of both in the hunt? Well, I think they'll probably try to come up with a coalition. I mean, I used, as you know, because I wrote about it for the U.S. Spectator, I I thought that Warren was the original spoiler. She's still in it, I think, to some extent, just to stop Bernie. Because if she wasn't in the race... Sanders would roll, roll, roll up the carpet. Uh, you know, her 15 percent, most of it would go to Sanders uh, in Iowa and he would be unstoppable. So she's going to stay in as long as she can, I think, partly to, to keep the feminist flag uh, uh, flying, but also partly to keep the, uh, the, the party elders happy, the party establishment happy. 
uh, because she thinks she'll get something out of it in the end. But I don't think she can last now. A Bloomberg-Biden ticket? It's conceivable. It's conceivable. And they would do, they'll do almost anything to stop Sanders. And this is, if I can go further, I'm trying to think ahead of what happens if Sanders does get the uh, nomination. And what I fear is that they'll try to pull the plug on him after the convention. The establishment will. But again, as you say, if it were in a kind of a Trump, Trumpist moment or Trumpist uh, period, it may all backfire against the Democrats. In 1972, the Democratic establishment turned against George McGovern very early. Uh, the head of the AFL-CIO, George Meany, actually declared his neutrality between Nixon, Richard Nixon, and, uh, and George McGovern. And John Connolly, the governor of Texas, or the former governor of Texas, close friend of Lyndon Johnson's, came out, invented a group called Democrats for Nixon. Now, it's hard to imagine the Democrats being so shameless that they'll come out with a Democrats for Trump organization. But they have other ways of, of subverting a Sanders candidacy, of, of, of tripping him up. Uh, so I'm very concerned about that, too. One thing for sure is there is going to be a terrible bloodletting in the party in the next, next three or four months. It's going to be very, very ugly. Well, I mean, I suppose the theory, if you, if you, if you look at 2020 in the context of 2016, I mean, the theory that strikes me as true is that both established parties are dead, effectively, and the Republican Party has now become the party of Trump. And in 2016, had it not been for superdelegates and the Clinton machine stopping Bernie last time, the Democratic Party would have become the party of Bernie. And indeed, in many ways, in terms of you know Medicare for all and things like that, the party has shifted towards Bernie already, and, and now the takeover is about to be completed. Well, the rank and file uh, seems to be shifting in favor of Bernie. And again, I, I go back to the polls from early June uh, 2016, when Bernie was just about to drop out of the race. They all showed him beating Trump in the general election by more than Clinton. Clinton was, uh, uh, in most polls, was shown beating Trump by 3%. Uh, Sanders, anywhere from 5 to 10%, I think. And uh, I remain convinced that he can win the general election if the Democrats don't chop him to pieces, because he appeals to Trump voters who switched from Obama to Trump in 2016. They're all the disaffected former factory workers who lost their jobs because of NAFTA and the permanent normal trade relations with China, who would have voted for Sanders over, over Trump if he'd been allowed to run, and, and who helped Sanders beat Clinton in the Wisconsin and Michigan primaries. And also, Bernie's done something very, very smart, which is to vote against the new NAFTA. There's a new NAFTA that Trump negotiated, which is decidedly to the left of the old NAFTA. However, most of the things uh, that the working class would applaud in that new agreement are symbolic. They're not going to make much of a difference. And Sanders rightly says it's, it isn't going to stop the factories from moving south to Mexico or moving to China. So he voted against it. So he's not going to have to defend his vote against the new NAFTA with the working class in the Midwest, whereas Trump is going to have to go around saying, I've done a lot to help you. And it's not at all clear that he has. You know, the, the factory outsourcing is still going on, and the factories are not coming back the way Trump promised. And Trump, for all the extent to which he's called foolish, it seems to be aware of this. There was the leaked 
conversation with uh, Lev Parnas that Parnas leaked in the Ukraine Gate saga that t- had Trump saying that he was worried about Sanders because Sanders was very good on trade. So Trump understands that this is the kind of crucial swing vote, is very concerned with trade and what used to be NAFTA. And so he's well aware of the th- threat that Bernie poses there. Absolutely. There, there, remember, it's uh, 80 to 100,000 votes swung the election in three states, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. That's what made the difference in, uh, in 2016. And by the way, I, I urge your listeners to listen to the Par- Parnassus tape. Is that what it's called? Parnassus, yeah. Uh, I've forgotten how to pronounce it. But listen to the whole thing, because it's not just Trump admitting uh, that Sanders is a bigger threat to him, uh, is a big threat to him because of trade. It's also fascinating to listen to Trump among his friends and how they talk to each other. You know, the, the sort of the self-congratulation is on a level that is, 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 is awesome. <laughs> I don't know how else you to can describe appeal to it. people who are a bit disaffected Just by astonishing. That. I mean, you can't help but marvel at it. You, yeah, you can, you can only marvel at it. It's really extraordinary. If if we go back to Trump and trade and look at you know how Bernie can appeal to people who are a bit disaffected by that, I mean it seems to me you, you say the new the new NAFTA USMCA deal is, is is has left these these working class Americans disappointed. I suppose it has, but also there have been provisions carved in by Lighthizer, Trump's trade genius. Some people say to make sure that workers don't feel as though they've been left behind for once. Yes, yes, no, no I, it, it looks on paper great because it has minimum uh, wages for auto workers in Mexico, which will never be paid of something like $15 a, an hour in exchange for access to the U.S. market or to the U.S. and Canadian markets. But no, Toyota and Volkswagen are not about to pay $15 an hour to anybody in Mexico. It's just not going to happen. So the theory is that that production will shift back to the United States. It's not going to happen. It'll shift to China or they'll just or they'll or they'll just pay the tariff in the United States because the the labor, the cheap labor, the the wage differential between Mexico and the United States is so high. You know, they're still working along the the border for a dollar an hour in the heavier manufacturing zone closer to Mexico City, they're making $4 an hour, 4.50, maybe $5 an hour. It just you cannot beat the the cheap labor deal in Mexico, and the crucial element. I, you know, I wrote a book about NAFTA, which I, I wish people would read, called "The Selling of Free Trade." It came out twenty years ago. The main thing to remember is this is an investment agreement, not a trade agreement. And the most important provision of NAFTA, which has not been taken out of the new agreement, is investor protection. It's protection against expropriation so that if the Mexican government suddenly turned radical and seized your assets or the local union or the local political establishment shook you down, demanded bribes for the right to operate, you could go to an international arbitration panel that would pay you off, would compensate you in dollars. And that's what started the flood of of outsourcing of factory relocations to Mexico because you could anybody could build a factory in Mexico before uh, 1994 and take advantage of the cheap labor but american businessmen were afraid they didn't want to pay bribes and they were afraid of expropriation because of the 1938 
a nationalization of oil by uh, Lazaro Cardenas. So, so NAFTA uh, effectively um, secured low-wage production. Right. It, it, it's an insurance policy. It's an investment agreement. And the same thing with permanent normal trade relations with China. Uh, by passing PNTR in 2000, Clinton forced that through too, China was allowed to join the World Trade Organization, which forces China to adhere to certain rules uh, and makes them much less likely to seize your property. I mean, remember, it's supposed to be a communist government. So, again, a lot of American corporations were afraid to move their factories to China because they were afraid of expropriation. Nobody has to worry about it anymore. Well, let's let's talk about what happens if, let's say, Bernie wins tonight and he wins in New Hampshire. Uh, he then has quite a lot of momentum going into South Carolina. And, I mean, the way he was stopped last time was through superdelegates and the Clinton machine controlling party apparatus in various states. Can superdelegates stop him this time, or does he have more of a hold on the people who are the superdelegates? Actually, perhaps explain how superdelegates work for our, our English listeners. Superdelegates are appointed by the local party hacks, by the local party machines in all states. And they go to the convention with the right to vote for anybody they want. However, they're not allowed, I think, to vote on the first ballot. This was a sop to the Sanders supporters from 2016. They only get to vote if there's been no resolution on the first ballot. They get to vote on the second ballot. So in a split convention, let's say it's uh, Sanders, Biden, and, and Bloomberg, and Sanders doesn't get it on the first ballot, Yes, the superdelegates who are appointed by the, the Democratic establishment get to vote in the second round, I believe, and they will vote for Biden and Bloomberg. They're not going to vote for Sanders, so they could steal it from him again. However, if it looks like they're stealing it from him, they're taking it away from him, and it's a conspiracy, again, the ugliness, the, 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 the bloodletting is going to be so great, it will weaken them going into the election. And, you know... Some people, my, my political guru, Walter Karp, used to say uh, they'd rather lose with a Clinton or lose with a Biden than win with a Sanders because they, the most important thing to a party hack is to maintain control of the party, the patronage, the fundraising, and so on. Sanders is going to upend all of that. Are they so cynical that they, they would throw the, uh, the election to Trump in order to stop Sanders? It's possible. It's happened before. It happened in 1968, and it happened in 1972. Picking up of things on this side of the Atlantic, it seems to me that there's more of an acceptance among, you know, the sort of CNNs and MSNBC pundit class of Sanders this time, or at least there's, they, they feel perhaps a bit more embarrassed about opposing him so directly. Well, only recently are they getting a little nicer, but they were horrible and terribly unfair until about a couple of weeks ago. And they trumpeted the Warren dirty trick against Sanders about him, her claim that he said that a woman couldn't win. And even in the last debate, I don't know if you watched it, one of the, one of the moderators, I forget, a woman, he, she asked Sanders to respond. Sanders denied that he said what Warren said he said. And then when she asked Sanders, I mean, excuse me, when she asked Warren the follow-up question, she said, when Senator Sanders told you that a woman couldn't win the election, you know, it was astonishing. How did how how did you feel? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it was like just astonishing, just completely accepting, stipulating what Warren had said, not saying allegedly or anything. So I think there's still a tremendous bias 
and MSNBC, the New York Times, the Washington Post against Sanders, and you're going to see it continuing. There are also two other uh, free radicals, let's call them, in this race who could take votes away from Sanders. One is Andrew Yang, who's led an eccentric but quite interesting campaign so far and seems to, uh, he claims to appeal to Trump voters quite a lot. And the other one is Tulsi Gabbard, who has uh, not done very well in the polls, although she is doing okay in New Hampshire at the moment by uh, latest accounts. And she is running on a sort of anti-hawkish, anti-neocon foreign policy ticket and also not being so obsessively anti-Trump that she can't talk sense. For instance, she didn't vote to impeach him. Right. And and those they're definitely going to help uh, Sanders. They can't help him in Iowa, however, because in order to get counted, you have to you have to be part of a group that has 15 percent of the caucus votes supporting one candidate. If you're below 15 percent, which I assume Yang and uh, Gabbard will be in Iowa, your votes don't count. You have to you have to switch to somebody who's reached the 15 percent threshold. But yes, in states like New Hampshire, it could help. But again, the bigger question is South Carolina. If again, if Sanders does better than he did last time, because he did very poorly against Clinton in, in 2016, he could win by losing. In other words, if he beats, let's say he does 35 percent or 40 percent, people will say, uh, well, he did better than expected. I still think he has a real chance of winning the nomination. I'm just very respectful of the power and the viciousness of the Democratic Party establishment. They reject, as I've said many times, they reject Bernie Sanders and Bernie Sanders-like people, like a strong immune system rejects a virus. He is anathema to what they're all about. Well, you you might think this is my uh, instinctive right-wingery, but don't you think also that Sanders' economic message, his platform does leave a lot of Democratic voters feeling a bit nervous. I mean, for instance, on something as practical as fracking, he's proposed to introduce a fracking ban. There's a hell of a lot of jobs in America and jobs among Democratic voters that are connected to or actually are fracking jobs. So, I mean, by opposing that publicly, even if he says he's got a Green New Deal, I imagine that would be quite frightening for a lot of voters. Absolutely. He's going to try to counter that with a massive public works program, some kind of you know real New Deal-like uh, WPA uh, uh, program where he puts everybody to work who gets thrown out of work by his policies. And, of course, that, that's the great question is whether he'll be able to get the Democratic Party to, to follow him on Medicare for all. I mean, but again, for my... British listeners, some people consider this uh, charming about America, that we're so retrograde. We think that a healthcare system that guarantees medical care uh, for free, quote unquote, for everybody, uh, or access to the medical, medical care, the healthcare system for free uh, on a national basis is some kind of radical left-wing proposal. I mean, does anyone think Boris Johnson is a radical left-winger when he defends the national health insurance? It's, it's sort of quaint. It's kind of charming, maybe. But it's also sort of horrifying that Americans are so ignorant of what goes on in the rest of the world or what constitutes, let's say, minimum decency in civilized countries that we think that socialized medicine, so to speak, or, or national health care is some kind of wildly communistic proposal. 
and that the insurance system, that Americans love their health insurance. Americans hate their health insurance. They hate arguing with the insurance company. They hate watching their doctor argue with the insurance company. They hate the slow pay on claims or the denied claims. It's absurd. It's just absurd. I remember talking to you about Bernie Sanders in 2016, uh, and I think you said he's dangerously to the right of David Cameron right. on economics. Exactly. He's, a, he's, a, he's the sort of social democrat that the Bolsheviks would have had executed within about five minutes. <laughs> yeah. you know, nothing more frightening to a left-winger, a serious left-winger, an orthodox left-winger than a social democrat uh, who will buy off the working class. And and that's what that's what Bernie Sanders is. He's basically a social democrat. He he does seem very taken with what he calls the Nordic model, and in particular Finland. And I mean, I you know, it it seems a bit simplistic to say you can apply a Nordic model to America, which is a country of massively higher immigration and a much more complicated country to regulate. I would say. Yes, I would argue if I were. On his campaign staff, I would argue against using a, a Finnish example. It's absurd to talk about Finland. He should be talking about the UK and France and Italy and the Netherlands, countries that Americans are more familiar with. And I and I expect he will at some point. He'll 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 straighten out his campaign rhetoric. But again, on on uh, the healthcare system and on well, of course, the Finnish are also great on public education, which is something very few people know. But on the, again, on the national health care uh, plan, Medicare for all, this is something that Harry Truman proposed in the early 50s. He was beaten by the American Medical Association because the doctors were afraid of their incomes being cut. But it was, it was a close call in the early 50s uh, by a, what we would call today a centrist Democrat. So again, it's just, I hope that, again, I hope Sanders has the wit or his staff has the wit to to bring out clips of Harry Truman calling for national health insurance. Well, Rick, I think we're going to leave it there, but let's talk uh, after Iowa and New Hampshire. Okay. I'm looking forward to, to watching the results into the early hours today. It'll be, it'll be interesting. That'll be great. Thank you very much for listening. Just a reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, and you can also subscribe to the magazine through our special podcast offer, which is on www.spectators.co.uk forward slash pod offer and we'll even throw in a spectator moleskin notebook for people who take up that offer <laughs>